So I got a book for Christmas. <laughs> the big, thick tome. The name of the book is called The Best of the Church Curmudgeon. <laughs> Subtitle, Then Tweets My Soul. <laughs> the church curmudgeon. I don't know the, the identity of the, the guy that does it, but there is a Twitter account called The Church Curmudgeon. And he's got some classics. I thought I would share a few inspirational ones with you. First one in the whole book is maybe my favorite. They call it a selfie because narcissisty is too hard to spell. <laughs> but you can't be the church curmudgeon without poking a little fun at the church. For instance, question, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb in the sanctuary? Answer, they can't. <laughs> that would involve raising their hands. <laughs> Pastors are not exempt from his uh, sharp wit, for instance. Pastors and soccer fans are the only people who think something with only three points in an hour is exciting. <laughs> I can read this whole book to you. Oh, just... <laughs> Here we go. Worship team, now it's your turn. In the Old Testament, the choir led the army into battle because the worship team looked ridiculous in their skinny jeans. <laughs> yeah. There we go. How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Dancing ascends a zero. <laughs> Question, why don't Baptists dance? Answer, ever seen a Baptist dance? <laughs> Please pray for our children's director who fell off a ladder and suffered injuries to her head, shoulders, knees, and toes. <laughs> I marked a lot of pages. Oh, I already did that one because it's, you know, the dancing one. Wait, okay, here we go. The church curmudgeon's generation to the moon with slide rules and protractors. Millennials can't get out of McDonald's drive-thru without GPS. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Service project. The youth. Here's yours. Our youth group will be ripping new jeans to send to uncool kids in third <laughs> Don't tell the pastor but we just installed a sleep number pew in the back. <laughs> I'm a 78. <laughs> and last, but certainly not least, it's only page 54, I could keep going. May your praises today be holier than the worship leader's genes. <laughs> yes, I know you're all thinking, why can't that be the sermon for the next 30 minutes? I guess I have to change it. Uh, I like it because we started last week talking about this idea of why do we do that? And it's, it's an interesting question to consider. And today I want to tackle probably the two things that make up the bulk of the church service. We're going to talk about why do we sing and why do we preach? Fair enough? Now, obviously the church curmudgeon kind of poked his fun at some of those things, but... You know, those are the things that when you think about a church service over the course of the hour, hour and 15 minutes of a typical church service, they're pretty much what we spend most of our time doing. And as I mentioned last week, it was those two things 
that Donald Miller kind of took particularly pointed aim at in his article about why he didn't attend church. Because A, he didn't like to sing, and B, he doesn't learn by hearing a lecture. And so I think a lot of people in our, our world might look at these things and wonder why did they still form the bulk of what we do when we get together in church. Now, particularly when we talk about singing, because are there really any places that you get together with people and corporately sing songs? I mean, if you go to a concert, you know the song, it's a favorite artist, you might all kind of sing along, but even then, we just went to, to see Billy Joel a few weeks ago, and they didn't put the words up on the screen or anything. It's not like here, you know, or they don't have books tucked under your, your seats that you can use in those kind of contexts. It's not a thing. Um, maybe karaoke night? <laughs> Church is kind of like karaoke sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> Probably just leave that right there. <laughs> move on, move on. But why, why do we sing? As odd as it might be, as unusual as it might be in our culture, why would we as people in church, and not just as Baptists, but really most Christian denominations, if you go to a church, there's going to be singing. In fact, if you were to open scripture, you would find over 400 Bible verses that talk about singing. And of those 400 plus, about 50 are particular commands that say you should sing. And so maybe you could take the easy way out and make the sermon wrapped up in five minutes and say, why do we sing in church? Because God commands it. Amen. So we pray. You're not that lucky. We're going to spend a few more minutes doing that. In fact, if you were to look at some of those 400 verses, you would find there's there's quite a variety of places and times when singing happens. It starts very early in Scripture. I think it's Genesis 4 where we see one of the children of Adam and Eve, uh, Jubal, I believe is his name, starts talking about music and musical instruments. Um, early on in the history of Israel, we see Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of chapter 31 into chapter 32, introducing a song to all of Israel. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law right before Moses passes away and the children of Israel go on in. And he uses this song and this, this idea of singing to kind of wrap up and reinforce the law that was given. We could look at, we just mentioned it thanks to good old church curmudgeon, the second passage in 2 Chronicles 20 where the choir leads the army into battle, not as a regular feature of, of like this is how we do things, but as a statement of faith, as they sang a psalm of victory. We could talk about the psalms themselves. A whole book, the largest book in the scriptures, 150 chapters, made up of, in effect, the worship songs of Israel. Psalm 100, those five verses, it tells the thing in verse 2, we should come into his presence with singing. Psalm 120 through 134 are called the psalms of ascent. They are the psalms that were used by Israel in worship as they approached the city of Jerusalem. The psalms of ascent because everything went up to Jerusalem. It was kind of that as you were on the way as a pilgrim to the, the celebration with Israel at the temple. The whole mass would sing these songs in unison as a way of, of praising God. We could see Jesus himself at the end of Matthew 26 after his disciples had the Passover meal. What we See, is the institution of the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn and went out before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to spend time in prayer. Acts chapter 16, we've got Paul and Silas 
They're in prison. And at midnight, what are they doing? Should be easy considering all that we talk about. <laughs> Any guesses? What are they doing? Right. Of course, they're singing. And then, without hitting every one of the 400 verses, we'll just jump ahead to Revelation chapter 7, where it says that at that heavenly assembly with people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around singing praises to the throne of God himself. This idea of singing permeates scripture from Genesis to Revelation and every point in between. It's part of it. One of the ones that I wanted to mention as well is there's a place where it tells us God sings. I think I put this one in the slideshow. I hope I did. Is Zephaniah chapter 3 up there? Oh, good. He shook his head yes. Otherwise, we have to look it up and who knows where Zephaniah is. I don't want to be the preacher looking at people That would ruin everything. Actually, I learned a song that taught me the books of the Bible, so you just have to hear me sing it. Let's just look at the screen. Oh, yeah. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So singing becomes a part of what it means for the people of God to get together. It becomes part of what will define, we might say, even our heavenly kingdom, that worship, singing, will be there. Actually, I made that mistake. I was purposely not going to use the word worship because I think in our world, in church world, as we so affectionately call it around here, those two words are often equated. Worship equals singing. And particularly, we, we have two kinds of things. We say praise and worship. Praise is the fast songs, and worship are the slow, contemplative songs. That's not the point. Let's not throw that out. Don't think that way. That's not it. Worship happens from the moment you're born to the moment you die. You're worshiping something with your life. It's where your life is directed. What? By your choices, by your actions, you're ascribing worth to. Your life is, in fact, worship. It's not limited to a, quote, worship service at church. It's not limited to just a part of that worship service when music is part of it. Worship is bigger than that. So we're not talking about worship. You worship whether you're recognizing it or not. We're talking about particularly why do we corporately gather and sing. So the first brief answer is it's all throughout Scripture and God commands it. But I want to look a little maybe more particularly in a passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 5 that talks about particularly this idea of singing. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, hence the name of the book, and he tells us some things in that passage beginning in verse 15 uh, and included in that is this idea of singing. Notice how he starts, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but is wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the word Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, with hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think I didn't put verse 21, but I'm going to throw it in just for fun. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here in this passage, we see and we, we might gloss over it to think Paul just lists a bunch of things. Do this, do this, do this. 
and, and we say, oh, singing is one of them. But I think the context here might inform us on the value of singing. What's the context of the whole passage? The context of the whole passage, as I started in verse 15, talks about how we live in this world. How we live particularly in this world because the days are evil. We talked a little bit about that last week, that we live in a world, I think, that's moving toward uh, its consummation, that's moving toward the return of Christ. And Scripture would tell us that as history marches toward that point, the world we live in is going to move increasingly further from the things of God. The values, the lifestyles, the things that are held up as important and worth pursuit I think that, as I said last week, the, the authentic biblical Christian life is going to stick out a little bit more in the face of a culture moving that direction. And so Paul writes these words 2,000 years ago to people, we might say, well, they're very far removed from our culture. But nonetheless, Paul would say to them, this is how you should live. Be careful how you live because the days are evil. How much more, we might think would we 2,000 years later need to take that to heart? And so I think part of the, the context here is singing, this lifestyle that includes singing, this corporate expression of worship through singing is something that helps us be careful how we live. How might that be? Well, one thing that, to notice in this verse is it says this phrase that we uh, speak to one another. That's about like all us here, right? One another isn't just like I'm speaking to God, but we're speaking to one another. We've sang four songs so far. Mm -hmm. What have we sang? God is good. Y'all kind of like that one, I think. A little upbeat, a little fun. We sang uh, In the Sweet By and By, like that one too. Where'd we go after that? Hold on, I'm gonna get there. Grace Your grace is enough. <coughs> And then everlasting God. And yes, we sang because the words were up there and the band is practicing. They're leading us. But in that, what is happening is the hundred plus people in this room are proclaiming at times the truth and word of God. And not only are we proclaiming it, but we're hearing it proclaimed around us. We are, yes, singing to God. That's covered in this passage as well. But we're encouraging in that one another over the course of, let's say, the last song, Everlasting God, which seems to come out of, of uh, that passage in Isaiah. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up and they will run and not rear. They will walk and not be faint. Hold on. <laughs> not going well for the preacher today. Go ahead, finish it. You're good. Aha! I don't feel so bad. <laughs> but that song comes out of that scripture. It's using those words that strength will rise to those that wait upon the Lord and all. So we are not only singing that, but so we're using our, our minds to read, to look at the words. We're using our mouths to speak. Our ears are hearing it around us. And all of that is reinforcing in us from the hundred or so people in this room, the truth that is in that song. And so for this period of, of time in worship and singing together, we are speaking to one another in ways that would, you're, you're hearing the testimony. When we sing, God is good. Some of you sang that maybe with a little extra gusto because maybe this week something happened and you went, God is good, so I can sing this song and proclaim the goodness of God, right? Anybody got that? You want to raise your hand? 
I'm not going to call on you necessarily, because you know, you're trying to intimidate and talk in front of people, believe me, you should see yourselves. <laughs> but, you know, you're like, I can sing that song, I can sing it, but God is good. And maybe over the course of this week, you said why God is good, or maybe today, because I've talked about this, you'll get a chance. Somebody say, hey, I noticed you raise your hand about God is good. What happened this week? And you could speak to each other. These, this is the way singing can accomplish building each other up as we're hearing and proclaiming these hundred plus testimonies together. Why do we sing? Because it has that dynamic. Another thing that singing does, kind of hinted at, to, hinted at it already, is it reinforces in our mind, quite often, the very word of God. I probably learned as a kid more scripture set the song than I did just wrote trying to put it in my head. Are you the same way? You got, you got things like that? I mean, again, I'm not going to sing any for you because that's the first part of the service and we've moved past 9.30, so there's no singing. Important rule. Nonetheless, we, we have those things that, that we learn in our mind and that we can recall. And often when I'm quoting scripture, if I learned it as a song, that's what I hear. And I have to resist the rhythmic way of saying it based upon the song I learned as a kid. I'm trying to think of one. This is not a great sermon illustration. I think it's, it's Galatians 2.20. Um, Nevertheless, I live, but Christ who lives in me. And life that I live, I live by the faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave his life. I can, that's a song. It's hard to say. It's easier to sing. It's hard to hear me sing. <laughs> it's easier to hear me say. So it's very easy. So singing also has that dynamic to it. It is a way that can put in our memory, because of the musical dynamic, because of that kind of hook for us, scripture that otherwise we might have difficulty memorizing. So singing can play that role in our lives. Notice also um, the idea that it says not only we speak to one another, but it says sing and make music in your heart to who? To the Lord, always giving thanks to the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. It's okay to be honest. <laughs> Have you ever woke up on a Sunday morning and thought, I really don't want to go to church? <laughs> and your wife said, but honey, you're the preacher. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever woken up on a Sunday morning and just not wanted to come to church. Anyone? It's okay. You're among I'm going to guess everybody could raise our hand to that. I'm tired. I don't feel like it. It's been a rough week. Maybe the last thing you want to do is to go to church and think about praising God. And then you come. You kind of make yourself. And I'm not going to say it happens every time, because sometimes it doesn't, but there are times in my life that I went, I didn't really want to go, and often it was a song that was part of the service. Maybe one of my favorites. Maybe, maybe a new one I'd never heard before that just caught my attention. Maybe one that I'd grown up with as a kid that connected me to a moment or to a memory or to a, a person in my life. And in that moment of singing, that attitude of I don't want to go changed. And now I understood why I needed to be there. Because I was with God's people singing and making music, not only in my heart, but with my voice to the Lord. 
And I was ready to always give thanks to God the Father in everything. I was reminded. I'm going to stop just short of saying forced to do something I didn't feel like doing. And I think if you've ever been there, you know that kind of pushing through that moment and doing what you know you oughta, sing and give thanks in everything, made a huge difference in your attitude, in your heart, because you got together with God's people and you sang a few songs together. Why do we sing? Because it has great value in our lives. It reinforces the word of God. It reminds us that life isn't easy, that, that we're at war in this world in many ways with, with a life that's, with a culture that's pulling us away from the life of God. It pushes us to do things maybe we don't feel like doing. We find out sometimes obeying change our feelings. And here's just one last tidbit before we move to the second part of the, the message today. There was a study, a neurological study done. It, it was actually published in the magazine or the journal Frontiers of Neuroscience. I didn't write the author's name down. Did you know? He studied particularly choral groups in religious settings. That when those choral groups sang, over the course of just a few minutes of singing together, their heartbeats began to sink. Remarkably, you know, put the, put the monitors on them and before their heartbeats were all over the place. Just because, you know, you would expect that. But as they started singing, his thought is it had to do somewhat with the rhythmic breathing. That as they were breathing according to the, the places in the song they were supposed to be, he would notice the, the beats of their heart began to line up. That's a physiological phenomenon, but maybe that's a reminder to us as well of all that we've said. That when we get together and we sing with God's people... When we focus our minds on the word of God, the goodness of God, the promises of God, the commands of God, it helps us unite as the people of God so that when we leave here, we're ready to do the work of God. Singing has great value. And so that's why it's something week in and week out in churches all across the world, Christians get together and sing. And then after they sing, the preacher gets up. And so today I answer the second question, why in the world? Not that you preach so long. That's another sermon for another day. Just why do we have preaching? Why, when we get together as the people of God, is it traditional, is it typical for somebody to get up and preach? Now, I'm going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to jump into this. Most of these scriptures are up on the, the screen as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to his disciple in the faith, Timothy, who was a leader at the church at Ephesus, and he says, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom. I give you this charge. Verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. 
rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Why do we preach? Point number one, why do I preach? Why should we preach? Because God has spoken. God in his word has spoken to us. The phrase there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, all scripture is God breathed. That God through his word has spoken. We talk about the inspiration of scripture. That, that scripture is inspired and infallible. That when we open this book we call the Bible, we have in our hands the word of God that has been inspired in history and preserved through history so that we can pick it up and read it. And I would submit to you with great confidence, know that God is speaking to us through it. We preach not because of anything less than the fact that God has spoken and given us something to say. Now, if I were to ask you, how many of you believe in the inspiration of the Bible? We'd probably all raise our hands. And I heard a story from my professor at seminary about a professor of his that was, as he called it, a happy agnostic. thought that was an interesting phrase. Um, former uh, person who was in the Christian faith and, and at some point came to, to the conclusion that he couldn't buy what he had been selling. And so he, through academia, went in to be a professor. And he taught in the philosophy uh, division at a major university and he would often start one of his classes by asking it was a, it was a book about it was a class about religion and the bible and like how many of you here question i just asked believe in the authority and the inspiration of the scriptures and usually without a doubt every hand in the class would go up as you might expect and then he would ask a seemingly unrelated question he would say well i'm just curious as well how many of you have here have read and he'd usually pick a recent uh novel series, maybe like the, the Hunger Games or like the Harry Potter books. And of course, because of the age of the class, every hand would also go up. He said, oh, that makes sense. So when he have a few moments about it, he said, one last question after they talked for a few minutes about those books. So how many of you have read the entire Bible? And very few hands would go up. And the professor at that point would say, no, I could understand why you would read Harry Potter or The Hunger Games. They're entertaining and all that thing. But if you told me a minute ago, you believe the Bible was the inspired word of God, why would you not read that? And that was sort of the trap he laid for them at the beginning of his class, which he set out to kind of move them further away from the conviction that they could believe the Bible as the word of God. It's a it's a tough question, isn't it? Something that, well, it's worth thinking about. Why can I pick up a book and blow through it in no time, but sometimes when I pick up the Bible, does it put me to sleep? Anyone else? It's okay to say that, isn't it, in church? I hope it is, because it just said it. I mean, I, I love to read. But why is there that dynamic? And I think that we can lose the connection with the fact 
that what Paul writes to Timothy when he says, you have known the Holy Scriptures from infancy because your mother and your grandmother taught them to you and how you know that they are able to make you wise for salvation, that they are, in fact, the very words of God. And so why we preach begins with the thought that God has spoken. And we want to share that message with others. Notice he goes on and, and gives that that charge in four, chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Now, this is maybe the rub in, in some things, because in that part of, of what he says in verses 2, 3, and 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he, he delineates maybe a little bit for us about what preaching should be. One thing that it is easy to do, speaking as one who does this professionally, is to turn what happens on the stage into entertainment. It's easy to want the reaction from the crowd. It's easy to begin to live for that, to, to judge the success of a sermon based upon the engagement of the audience. How many times they laughed when you thought you were funny. How many times they amened or in some other way indicated assent to the truth you were saying. And it's easy to go home and think of it that way. It's even we have whole classes in seminary where we learn about the way you craft a message, the, the, the ways to put it together that are engaging. And while that is valuable and helpful and at times can help connect the, the message with the audience, it is not the goal. Paul says to Timothy, the goal is to preach the word. The substance of preaching should be the word of God. Because I got some things to say, but they're not nearly as important as what God has said. I have some opinions. I bet you do too. I could talk about a lot of things. And you might even be quasi-interested in them. But none of them, outside of what comes out of God's word, is able to to shape your destiny, is able to change your eternal home. That's why Paul would say to Timothy, do that. Notice another reason why he did that. He said, be prepared in season and out of season to correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. We might be there. Just a hunch. We may be close to those days when the things that are the things of God as revealed in Scripture, people don't really want to hear. I think in our culture, we could talk about particular moral issues, and they would be interesting to do. But the bigger thing that I see happening, if I could describe it, and I'll try to do it somewhat, and I'm sure it'll be poor, is it's not so much this particular moral issue as it is a sloughing off of the authority of God in lives in every area. It's not just about this. It's about everything. It's about, I don't want God, I don't want religion, I don't want whoever to be able to tell me what to do. I want to live my life. We are, we are enlightened, after all. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago. Has life changed much in 2,000 years? I shouldn't say the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. 
the New Testament, a couple thousand years old, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, way older than that, but we'll say the Bible as we have it is about 2,000 years old in its final form. That's a better way to put it. Feel better about that? I hope you do too. You're probably like, why did you go into all that detail? Because we don't really care. Just make your point. Okay. <laughs> Has the world changed in 2,000 years? Mm -hmm. A little different today. Like, if you were to go back into the days of the New Testament, culturally, technologically, socially, things were a whole lot different. And it's, I would say, the arrogance of the modern mind to think that somehow we are so much more enlightened that we can just throw aside the things then. Because, you know, we know so much more now. And we do in areas of science. And don't hear this as a takedown of you shouldn't study science. You should study science. Science is fascinating. Read an article years ago, actually maybe a book called All Truth is God's Truth. One of the principles of that because science just reveals the natural laws that God put into creation when he made it. And as we learn scientific knowledge, we're uncovering the amazing God that we had that could see so far ahead of our knowledge that he set that stuff up before we even knew it was there. It's a pretty big God. But, though that be the case, and though the things of of 2,000 years ago compared to today seem very elementary. The things that God has spoken, the authority that he's given us in his word, speaks to your life in a way that transcends the particulars of this and that and the other. And so we preach the word because it's the word of God. We preach, we preach the word because God has spoken because he has given us principles that we can live by. And he says to Timothy, preach the word because the temptation of mankind will be to move away from those things and thereby away from God instead of toward God. I could probably cite and say names and say these are the people I think that might fall into these categories of 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. I'll spare you that as well. But you know what I mean, I think. You've heard those things. That are said, you know what's out there, and it is, it seems to me, the trend in church world these days is to push back against the things of God rather than to embrace what God has said. And so I hope, and oh, by the way, I'll be held accountable for it one day in a different way than you will be. That when we get together, one of the reasons there is preaching is because there is a God who has spoken in history and given us his word. And it's worth reading and it's worth studying and it's worth learning from. And more than that, it's worth leaving this place and doing, putting into practice the things that he said. So we sing because we speak those things of encouragement to one another. It helps us as we leave this place to live a life that matters in the face of a culture that pulls us away. And we preach because the word of God is authoritative. It's inspired. It is timeless in its truth. One last passage of scripture and then we'll wrap up. Romans chapter 10 beginning in verse 14. 
Paul writes to the church at Rome these words, how then can they call on the one they have not believed? Now, if you were to back up to Romans 10, 9 and 10, do you remember the Roman road of salvation? Anybody heard that phrase? Like, okay, this is something, if you're not familiar with that, there used to be a way to, to kind of tell people about your faith in Jesus Christ by using only verses in the book of Romans. And you use, like, Romans 3, 23, which is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you use Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Another passage is Romans 10, 9 and 10, and it says this in those verses. They are on the screen. I'll just read them to you. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So part of that gospel presentation, we might say, part of telling people what it means to place their faith in Jesus Christ was that passage. And Paul, a few verses later, asked a great question. How can people call upon the one? Because isn't that what it says? That if you confess with your mouth, so call upon God. How can they call upon one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? Those are good questions, right? If, if what it means to place your faith in Jesus means to be moved from death to life, means to be forgiven of your sins and guaranteed a home in heaven, if it means you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, that's something that people may want to know. How do I do that? And how can they know? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach, it says in verse 15, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The old way I rememberized it a few years ago. Why do we preach? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith comes how? According to Romans 10, 17, by hearing. Now, hearing when they preach, right? Isn't that the whole context of this? So why do we preach? Because another reason we preach because we believe in this context, the preaching of the word of God can bring new life. The preaching of the word of God can call someone out of darkness into light. It can lead to one placing their faith in the only one, the only name given by which man can be saved. Which brings us to the next part of the service. And not today's sermon, aren't you glad? Because it's already after 10. <laughs> But a future one, we have this thing we call an invitation, a time of response. If you're wondering why, just keep coming on Sunday. I'm not even going to tell you which week I'm going to talk about. I'm going to make a surprise because I don't really know either. It's a surprise to all of us. But we have a time of response because we believe that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. We believe that the Word doesn't return void. That when it's proclaimed, when it's presented, it is effective. And maybe today, as we talked about these things, it's been effective in your life. It's been convicting or encouraging. And so we offer a time of response for you to respond, not to me and not to the church, but to God himself as he is calling you through his word. 
our, our band and our singers are going to come on up and get ready. And we're going to have a song. And the song is just kind of the cover. It gives everybody a thing to do. Now, we sing in church. I covered that. So I don't mean we're just kind of giving. But it, don't hear me. As a, it's, it's like kind of the background noise for you to deal with the things God's speaking to you. And while we sing together, we also open the front. I'm usually at the front. I'm all, yeah, I'll say usually. And I'm here to, to talk with or pray with anybody who, through the course of the message, something hit home and you want to maybe just have someone to pray with you and encourage you. Maybe something of conviction through the message hit you and you want to kind of work that out. I'm here for that as well. We also invite you, if you just want to come and pray at the altar, at the front, kneeling, maybe bring a friend or a spouse and say, hey, come pray with me. You can also use this time. But it's about responding to what God has spoken to you today. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And as our band 